Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Insider Podcast. This is Scott Pierce with the American College of Radiology, and today I am joined by Drs. Scott Taylor and Matt Hawkins, and today we are talking about coaching for sustainable change. Uh, Matt Hawkins is a pediatric interventional radiologist at Emory University, and Scott Taylor is the Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at Babson College. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you very Thank much. You. So uh, a lot of this, we just are here at the RLI Leadership Summit, and we just had a session on coaching for sustainable change, and there's a lot of great information that we covered and how it relates to how we can uh, become better in what we do and also how our, or we can become better within uh, how we work as teams, et cetera. And so one of the uh, the first things that I really uh, thought was impactful, uh, Dr. Taylor, was when you talked about the power of positive emotions. Um, and in that, you gave an example, um, and I'll let you kind of go through that, but a lot of it is around what stress can do to us and how that can affect us in negative ways. And if you can kind of explain a little bit about um, what stress can do to us and how that relates to how we see things and, and how we work, that would be uh, very helpful, I think. Yep, absolutely. Well, first of all, what we know and most people can readily recognize is that emotions are highly contagious, whether they're positive emotions that inspire us and, and excite us. And it's like when a friend tells about a good movie and you all of a sudden want to reach out and watch the movie as well because you, uh, the emotions of your friend kind of are contagious to you. Same with the negative emotions. They're also very highly contagious. And so what great leaders do and what organizations do that, that understand that is they use that to leverage creating climates and environments that are inspiring and inspirational to people and to therefore their performance and try to minimize the impact of the negativity that exists. Obviously, we were built to handle both positive and negative emotions, but uh, the ratio actually matters in terms of performance. And what we're finding is that organizations that are overall primarily negative in terms of their tone tend to also be highly correlated uh, in terms of their stress levels. And so what you see in those environments that are toxic emotionally, negatively, uh, is you see lower performance, you see higher turnover, you see uh, higher health care costs, you see um, less productivity. And, and there's a lot of research that supports that to the tune of billions of dollars of lost productivity. And so what we were talking about in the session is, you know, how do you create environments that are overall positive? Um, so that you get the most in terms of the performance and outcome in people that you want, but also that are sustainable. And so that was kind of the gist of, of the emotions and the positive versus negative. Uh, thank you. Well, you mentioned stress and how that can impact. You know, Matt, obviously, uh, doctors are, are very stressed, radiologists are very stressed. We've seen the research on that uh, leading to a lot of burnout and, and many other issues that are related to that. Um, so contextually speaking and putting this into terms of, of, of a radiologist's day-to-day, when thinking about negative emotions that, that are triggered by the stress and how that could impact you in your day, uh, in particular, I think one of the sam- examples that you gave was about looking at different faces of, of a different gender and different race and how you would see them as the same versus differently when visualization is so important to what you do as radiologists therefore this becomes i think pretty critical in this instance uh what are ways that you found in terms of of dealing with the stress in this situation identifying it and being able to have more of these positive uh emotions and experiences to therefore help you do your job better there's certainly a lot of inherent stress to being any type of physician and i certainly don't want to suggest that we're going to be eliminating that type of stress Um, on a (laughs) day-to-day basis. But the fact that that stress does exist probably just speaks to why it's even more important for radiologists or physicians to make sure 
that everything else they do in their workplace, whether it's the emotions that they bring to the job, the attitudes they cultivate with the team members that they're working with, or how they are renewing themselves as a leader, making sure they're doing that to the best of their ability so that the uh, any other stress outside of that which is inherent to the profession is minimized. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating too, Matt, was when you were wrapping up the session uh, and just now, you, you talked about sort of the progression that a physician goes through from medical school to residency and fellowship and then landing that job and how you're kind of isolated as you're going through and studying to, to nail your, your grades, nail your MCAT and get the resident and get the rounds and get that fellowship to get that job and, and how a lot of it when you're learning and going through that trajectory, uh, it kind of creates a certain type of physician you learn in a certain particular type of format. And when relating that to some of the, the negative supervisor tendencies that, that uh, Scott Taylor brought up, they talk about things being cold and detached and insensitive, impulsive, and even arrogance, and how we all kind of have supervisors that are that way or those are traits. And so oftentimes it seems like what you talked about with that trajectory of coming through into practicing kind of cultivates some of those things. Um, so if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about that experience and, and, and how that has related to what you've seen in terms of those practices being implemented um, either by osmosis in learning it or, or kind of even deliberately and maybe even ways that you've seen to be able to mitigate that and overcome that. Yeah. It, it- if, if, when you really look back at how you become a physician, at least in the United States healthcare system, it's, the way I describe it is it's an, it's an individual sport. You know, whatever age you decide you want to become a physician, it is now inherent upon you to do what needs to be done in a very formula-like fashion to get there. Whether that's you know undergraduate, getting a certain score on your MCAT exams, four years of medical school, getting a certain score on your step one score, uh, scoring high enough on your clinical uh, examinations in order to get a good residency, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. And then all of a sudden we finish our fellowship training and we're out into a job that we now have a 25 or 30 year uh, scope and scale on as compared to very tightly encapsulated periods of time throughout our training. And we're not taught how to function in teams. Uh, there are certainly some things we're trying to do um, in medical school to improve that, but we still test physicians individually. We still, and as long as we're testing physicians individually, our training is going to be very individual centric. We don't even know how to celebrate as a group in medical school, okay? Because we go and we take exams and we all go celebrate that the exam is over, but no one actually talks about the score that they got because it is a zero sum game. Some are gonna win and some are gonna lose. So we don't even know how to celebrate together. Yet now we're put in leadership situations, and even if we're not leaders by title, as physicians in a healthcare organization, you do carry influence. You are a leader in some way. Uh, and we are expected to build and function within high-functioning teams in complex organizations. And we're simply ill-prepared with conventional medical training to come out and do it. So again, courses like this and, and others that are out there are just becoming more and more vital the more complex organizations become in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, and you talked about this a little bit about how it really is kind of more of a team sport um, and with the, the whole supervisor aspect. One of the things that is, uh, I don't know how unique it is, but it's it's pretty unique in terms of radiology practices. There isn't necessarily the typical hierarchy, right? There's It's kind of first among equals as that is. And so there's no direct supervisor to employee relationship. And you can talk about toxic supervisors and what they can demean in terms of it debilitating the organization, and et cetera. 
So in an environment that's unique like that, where you don't necessarily have one supervisor that is in charge, but it's a team approach and it's kind of difficult to really sort of assign new responsibilities in a way because everyone's responsible for meeting these RVUs and, and et cetera. Um, what, what are, what's some advice, uh, Scott, that you might have in, in terms of helping physicians and radiologists in this instance kind of get beyond that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and it's interesting uh, what Matt said, and we find the same thing in our academic work uh, with with both research and also in going out and working with organizations outside of healthcare. This is not unique to healthcare. There's lawyers, partners, for example, in law firms, pilots, for example, have these processes, and so a lot of the structure of becoming an expert is an individual-driven sport. And so, you know, you're an engineer, and now all of a sudden you're put over 10 engineers, and the assumption is that you know how to lead 10 engineers but back to your so so I don't define leadership as a as a position um, certainly we like to refer to someone who is in a position of authority as they're the leader but for me leadership is about a relationship so going back to your question I can be a member of a team where there is no hierarchy or I can be a part of a matrix team to where I don't have direct uh, responsibility to evaluating those other individuals. They may be evaluated by their supervisors. And yet I can be a leader in the sense that if leadership is a relationship, the question becomes what type of relationship will lead to the type of influence that drives both the climate in terms of the culture of the organization, but also the performance of the individuals or the team as a whole. Uh, so that matters in terms of the nature of the relationship. So what we were talking about in the session today is that extraordinary leaders, outstanding leaders are worried about the relationship and in particular the level of connection with the other person, whether it be a member of the team or a subordinate or direct report to me. And also, the, so not only the relationship, but also the emotional tone of that relationship. And so my, my advice or my recommendation would be whether you're leading people or not in terms of authority, a position of responsibility, you can still be a leader in the organization or in the team or within the board or within the group if you're working to establish relationships that are positive and of a high connection to the other and where you know them and you're invested to them and likewise them and you. Because then what you're creating is a relationship where you're able to influence people and outcomes in positive ways because of the characteristics related to that relationship. You know, if you think about the people that have had a profound influence on us, um, if I were to say, you know, name the five people who have had an impact on your life in a positive way, you're often going to bring up individuals that had a type of relationship with you that was very different in terms of the nature of that relationship than those who had no impact at all. It's funny, one of the things I love to do with students uh, in business schools, I'll say, name the last five CEOs of some Fortune 500 company, or name the last five gold medal winners in the individual uh, medley in swimming, um, or name the last five presidents of any country. And often, they can't. And yet these are the people who reach the pinnacle of success, if you will, in their individual endeavors. And yet if I say, you know, name the last five people or name five people you like to spend the rest of your life with or five people who influenced the way you thought about yourself or the world, we can easily recall those individuals. And yet they may not be the experts in their field, but the nature of the relationship they had with us clearly influenced us. And so 
if I'm in an organization where I'm working with people who, with whom I have no direct responsibility, a matrix organization or a surgical team or a radiologist, radiology team, I can still demonstrate extraordinary influence by the way I create the relationships, the way I invest in those relationships, and then the positive emotional climate of those relationships. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, it reminds me, actually, one of the things you talked about uh, in terms of, of those relationships is that if you think that you know the people that you manage or you lead well, ask them what lights them up, right? What what drives them? What's a high point for them in terms of their career or when they've been working here? And I thought that that was really interesting. Can you just probably kind of provide just a little bit of yeah. a brief background on why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it goes back to what we talk about when we talk about leader self-awareness. Uh, leaders who are self-aware not only are aware of their own strengths and weaknesses, what they do, what their liabilities are, um, which is very much a self kind of assessed way of looking at self-awareness. But self-awareness is also, can I anticipate as a leader the impact and influence I'm having? And so one of the ways I work with leaders to develop that second component of self-awareness is starting to try to predict what they know about the people they work with every day. And so I do a fun little activity where I ask them to meet with those that they reported to or they've worked with that they feel they know well and ask them, you know, you've been at this organization or this hospital or in this institution for, you know, X number of years, what's been a high point for you in this organization? And have the individual tell them the story. And if, uh, if it helps to share your story first, to open them up and give them an idea of what you're asking about, then do that. But before they tell you the story, I want you to try to anticipate what story they'll tell. And often we struggle with pinpointing the right story. And yet we make assumptions about people in terms of the work we assign them, the feedback we give them based on what we think they value, what's important to them. But yet we never ask. And so what happens is they'll ask for the story and you'll hear the story. And you gain insight into those aspects of the individual that you may have not had otherwise, which helps you then delegate work, provide feedback, direct in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise. That's a fantastic uh, practical piece of advice. I mean, it's something everybody could go and yeah. implement immediately. And it actually, in context of medicine, it reminds me of the TV show Scrubs. It was an episode, one of the favorite episodes of mine, where uh, one of the doctors was asked by his old middle school. He went there to go give a presentation, and they asked, someone asked, what was your best moment in medicine? And they used that as the device then to tell this narrative of five different characters and what their best moment was. And they were all kind of disparate, not really connected, some kind of farcical. And then by the end of the episode, it was all about uh, treating a man, a single father, in order that they could get him home in time for Christmas with his son. And by the end, everybody had a very important part to play, from the nurses to the surgeon, even the radiology department in this episode, uh, all had an important part to play um, within treating this man and getting him taken care of to the point where he was home by Christmas. Um, and again, it starts out, what was your best moment in medicine? Exactly kind of what you were talking about, these high points, what really kind of lights you up. So in that context, Matt, and you, you mentioned this actually as you were wrapping up, um, in just sort of kind of summation here, with radiologists and with, with doctors and physicians and the teams that you're working with, high stress, uh, there's a lot of high payoff. If you talk about a little bit about the importance then in terms of remembering that and kind of what you were talking about a little bit earlier for the physicians to really remember that and how they might be able to go about doing that. Yeah, I think if any of us look back to our biggest moments in medicine, you know, we can we can take sort of career and leadership trajectory and put that aside for now, but just looking at our greatest moments in medicine, uh, I think all of us have been a part of 
some dramatic story, whether that's uh, a trauma victim that you saved on the table or were a part of saving on the table, uh, a stroke victim who you know maybe you were able to revascularize or be part of a team that was able to revascularize part of their brain. Um, there's some very, very dramatic stories, but if we look back at those, it was all part of somehow a team came together and functioned at a high level. Uh, everyone from the field field technologist to the person driving the uh, ambulance to the staff in the emergency department, the radiologist interpreting the films, the surgeon or the interventionist who perhaps did the procedure. It's this very complex uh, group of people that somehow came together and things worked seamlessly. So I think if we look at that and realize that some of our greatest moments come from very high complex, high functioning teams like that, it should just give us more motivation to try and build that into our day-to-day -day workflow. Really look at who our team is uh, and how we define what a team is in healthcare. And probably more often than multiple doctors working together in a multidisciplinary way, I think the teams that we really work with every day are our technologists and our nurses and our physicians together. And if we redefine our team as that nucleus of people, and put our efforts, such as Scott has prescribed, towards building the relationship with those group of people, we're going to find a higher day-to-day -day work satisfaction uh, with what we do. Yeah, and then also uh, uh, taking some lessons on learning how to properly celebrate then as That's a right. team, right? That's right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> learning how to celebrate as a team, which we're not trained to do. Fantastic. Maybe we'll do a podcast episode on that, right? <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you both very much for, for joining us for this podcast. Uh, it was a great session. I know everybody got a lot out of it, and uh, this has been great and for some good tips. So thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.